And he, that's Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Now that would be noon uh, on our time zone. All right, the sixth hour is noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is God's word. He had to pass through Samaria. Verse 4. Well, actually, he didn't. Because there was a bypass. Jesus and the disciples were in Jerusalem, uh, in the area of Judea. They were headed north to Galilee. And... There was a bypass. If they went straight through, they would go through Samaria. This section of Israel that is inhabited by a racial group at enmity with the Hebrew people. A 700-year-old racial group history of conflict, and that's when Jesus lived, 700 years in the time of Christ, 700-year-old conflict, ranging from 2 Kings chapter 17, when the Assyrian Empire came and swallowed up 10 of the northern tribes of Israel, and some of the Assyrians settled there in that region, and the Hebrews that remained behind, uh, they intermingled and they intermarried, and their children, the Samaritans, who were despised by the Orthodox Hebrews, who had accused them of uh, mingling with the secular culture of that day, and abandoning their allegiance to Yahweh. They hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated them. And they had two separate sites of worship. 
There was the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple in the time of Christ. There was the temple in Mount Gerizim in Samaria where the Samaritans went. In fact, the Samaritans are still uh, alive as a racial group even today. They're the oldest racial group uh, on earth today. Their DNA, their genetics range back all the way to 700 BC. There's less than a thousand Samaritans today. But they hated one another. The strife was intense. So that when you see a map of Israel here, uh, the bypass is there in the red dotted line. That's where most of the Orthodox Jews, they would go uh, east and then they would cross the Jordan River and uh, go north and then cross back over the Jordan River on the way to avoid contaminating themselves by going through Samaria. But Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 4, had to go through Samaria. What does that mean with that bypass there? It means that there was a divine appointment that Jesus had to keep with someone who didn't even know that she was going to meet him. That's who. Scripture says that they go into Samaria... To a town called Sychar, verse 5, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph of the book of Genesis. Very historic place. And Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well is still there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was noon. God in the flesh appeared. Feet tired, sweaty, fatigued, thirsty. He's by the well, but that's not why he went to the well. He didn't go to the well because he was thirsty. Even though he was thirsty, he went to the well to meet her. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And in one phrase, Jesus obliterated all of the customs and mores and barriers that existed between the Hebrew people and the Samaritan people. Three words in the original. Give me drink. Give me drink busts through all of the barriers. And, and to feel the force of this you need only to look at our own sin of racism in our country. What kind of a culture would be so racist as to construct plumbing to keep the races apart from one another? So Jesus goes to the fountain marked colored and says to the African-American woman who's filling her Water bottle. He says to her, in front of all to see, the readers, John's gospel, all to see, I want a sip from your water bottle. He had to go through Samaria. He had to. And she pushes back. <laughs> you trying to get me in trouble? Verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? 
for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Literally, for Jews and Samaritans do not use together. They do not use together. They do not use utensils together. They do not use plates together. They do not use cups together. They do not use together. But Jesus blows through all of that. Three words, give me drink. Give me drink. He blows through the racial barrier. He blows through the gender barrier. Even if Jesus had been a Samaritan, it would be totally inappropriate in that culture for him to speak with her at that place because that's just not what men and women did back then. In fact, to have a man address a woman at a well and what they weren't married would have been perceived as flirtatious back in that culture. Uh, Isaac, in the Old Testament, found his wife Rebekah by means of a well. Moses and his wife Zipporah uh, met at a well. And so it just kind of was thought in the culture of that day for a man to speak to a woman and they're both not married. That's a pickup place. Just reporting the news. <laughs> Give me drink. He blows through the, 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 the racial barriers and the gender barriers, but most significantly, the social barriers. The social barrier. You see, there's a reason why she was at the well at noon. Uh, all of the commentators and scholars that I referred to in this week's research um, made mention of the fact that no woman would have showed up normally at noon. It's the heat of the day. Uh, it's dry. There's no shade. They would gather either in the morning or at sundown. And it would become a social experience. And they would gather water and Fill the water in the well, their, their, you know, in their jars, and then they would talk and visit and socialize, and it was a time of community. But she wasn't there in the morning or at night because she'd been there at the morning and at night, and she didn't fit, and she got tired of their glares and their gossip and their stares. And so uh, uh, a walk in the hot sun at high noon was a small price to pay to keep herself sane from their gossiping tongues. And that's why she was there at noon getting that water. And it kind of became her sanctuary where she could just be there because she didn't belong anyplace else. That was the only place she felt like she did belong, was there at that well by herself. The Hebrew people, she didn't belong to them. The Samaritans, she didn't belong to them. She didn't belong to the family. She didn't belong. Does anybody feel that way here today? So, so she goes to this sanctuary of solitude each day. She'd been there the day before that, and the day before that, and she's going to go back the next day and the next day. And it's just kind of her place of escape where she can keep to herself 
and keep her secrets to herself and go and look who shows up then. Oh, can't I get a break? Jesus is there. The creator and king of the universe. Yahweh in the flesh. He is seated not on his high throne in the heavenly realms or on that white stallion upon which we see him in the book of Revelation. Rather, he's come down and he's seated there on the ground, the dusty ground. He's sweating. He's hot. He's tired. He's fatigued. Give me drink. Now, church family, that is Christianity. You are doing your moment by moment. You are doing your mundane. I've told you this before. I'll say it again. Most of your life is lived in the moment by moment and in the mundane. It is. You will make, in the course of your life, four, maybe five at the most, major, major life trajectory changing decisions right? And everything else is going to be the mundane. I'm going to run errands. I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to get gas in the car. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to run for this project for the kids, that school event for the kids, and then I'm going to see the grandkids, and then on and on and on. It's going to be moment by moment Mundane, my mundane, and it can leave you spiritless, and it can leave you without hope, and it can leave you trapped, and even a place like this can just become another checklist on your moment-by-moment mundane, right? Get up, have breakfast, go to church, check, get back home, get to my Sunday, check, 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 check. That is not Christianity. That is religion. You know what Christianity is? Christianity is this. The Lord appears. You round the corner. You're going to that familiar well. And Jesus shows up. And asks you for something. Give me to drink. The possibilities in that phrase. We will only see. As we continue on, obviously she pushes back. I mean, she's just like, what? I don't get it. Verse 10, or verse 9 rather. How is it that you ask me, a woman of Samaria, something to drink? And Jesus replies, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, living water. Uh, uh, there's a double meaning in that phrase. Living water is literally water like a stream, water that's moving, water that's a river. It's not stagnant. It's not still. It's moving. It's alive. And now the tables have been turned. At first, Jesus was thirsty, and she had the water. Now, he's offering her a drink from his fountain. So the issue now is not physical thirst, but spiritual need. But she doesn't quite connect the dots yet. And so, you know, she says, dude, Dude, you don't, you don't get it. I mean, you, know, you, you need a bucket for this well. You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get your living water? You know, you're greater than Jacob, who left his well on our territory, you know. 
Jesus says, no, lady, you don't get it. I don't need a bucket for the spring I'm talking about. I've got a spring to give you. And so she's kind of starky because she's been around the block. And she's kind of crusty and callous. All right, fella, if you can keep me from having to schlep this jar back and forth, I'll take whatever it is you got to take. Whatever. Whatever. Give me this water so that I don't have to be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water anymore. Verse 16, Jesus says, fine, good, go. Go get your husband. And the woman, you can just see her looking away, right? I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you know, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And now we know why she comes to that well at noon every day by herself, escaping their gossip in the morning and at night. Why did he have to bring that up? Why did he have to bring that up? What is that about? Well, it wasn't about a guilt trip. It was not about shaming her either. It was about putting her in touch with her thirst. Life has left her thirsty. Has life left any of us thirsty here today? Left her thirsty, and she needs to own that. She needs to own her powerlessness. And she needs to admit that her life has become unmanageable. And he's trying to show her that the well of water into which she's been dipping her life into is really what's behind her thirst. That's what's keeping her thirsty. And in this case, it's serial male relationships. So she says, I'm not spiritually thirsty. I have friends. Jesus says, sure you do. That's why you're here at noon. Go get your husband. Oh, wait a minute. You don't have a husband. You're right. You've been drinking from the fountain of multiple male relationships. Men have been running your life all these years. You've been asking men to do what only God can do. Some of you have been drinking from a well that's keeping you thirsty. In her case, it happened to be multiple male relationships. What about you? We've talked about this before. It never goes away. Career, your appearance, your obsession with health, your education. If I just get that degree, then I'll feel like I, I, I mean something. Your family status, your acceptance, getting into that inner circle, that inner ring, whatever that is for you. Money, stuff. And it's not that these are bad in themselves. Work, money, education, all these come from God. They're gifts from above. They're gifts, but they're not the giver. And good things become bad things when we make them into God things. Kyle Eidelman, who's a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, wrote a book called God's at War. And this is what he wrote. He said, what you search for and chase after reveals the God who is winning your heart. The true God is jealous for your heart, not because he's petty or insecure, but because he loves you. He loves you too much to share you. And so just as healing cannot happen without a complete diagnosis, grace 
will only do its final work when there are no secrets. And she's been keeping a secret because she's worried that Christ, like everybody else, once they, once he finds out her secret, he'll bolt, he'll run. Jesus says, I want you to go get your secret. You bring your secret back here. And you bring them to me. Unless you bring your secret to me, you're not going to find me. Listen, you will never discover the true Messiah until you disclose your false messiahs. You will never discover the true Messiah until you disclose your false messiahs. That's what's behind that. Well, I mean, you know, she's still got a few more shields. So she says something, oh, so typical. I mean, this conversation took place 2,000 years ago, but it may as well have happened this morning. She says, well, as long as we're talking about my morality, what's your stance on the issue of where people should worship? Huh? (laughs) The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. In Samaria, like I told you, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Diversion. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about temple worship, Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem. Let's talk about the Republican debates. Let's talk about the Democrat debates. Let's talk about something else. Anything but me. Jesus says, look, lady, here's the deal. God chose the Hebrew people to reveal himself to the world. He chose Jerusalem for the place of the temple. That's the deal. But here's the deal too. And you need to understand this. The hour is coming and has now come when where the temple is really doesn't matter. Whether it's in Gerizim or Jerusalem. I'm not kidding. Now he didn't say the temple doesn't matter. And he didn't say that she didn't need a temple. He's saying that the nature of the temple is going to change. See, the temple used to be aware, but now the temple is who? See, a temple is nothing more than a meeting place. A meeting place has nothing to do with whether it's in Samaria or Jerusalem. It has to do with where that ultimate meeting place is. And Jesus is trying to tell her, I am that ultimate meeting place. I am the temple where worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And then in verse 23, when Jesus talks about the hour, the hour is coming and is now here. What does he mean by hour? He's not talking about 60 minutes. He's talking about the time of his death on the cross where the cross and his sacrifice for us becomes the meeting place between God and people. That's going to be the place where we meet the Father. And she just kind of throws up her last shield now. Well, you know, we believe in the Messiah, and, and the, when the Messiah shows up, he'll explain it all when he comes. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, lady, I think I just did. You're looking at him. Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. You need a temple. I am that temple. 
And if you come to me, living water will come to you. And that's the beauty of this temple water imagery. Because if you look in Ezekiel chapter 47, and then you look at Revelation chapter 22, there's the image of the temple in Ezekiel's temple. Do you know what's flowing out of the temple? Water, the river, life. And then in Revelation chapter 22, there is a river flowing out of the temple. And remember, Revelation tells us that the Lamb is the temple. And living water flows from Him. Life that is truly life. And that's why we gather in this place here. We gather here because of the one who gives us living water. Thank you, Jesus. And she believes. <laughs> she believes. Amazing, isn't it? No miracles. No healing. No arguing from the Old Testament prophets about the Messiah's coming. No profound parables. What? Verse 29. He told me everything about me. He told me everything about me. And he still loves me. So she bolts back into town. And the disciples meet her coming back. And they've been in town. And they return back, you know, with their happy meals. And... Verse 27,